A lot can be learned about God simply by observing the world that He created. When we walk out, we walk outside, we walk into the woods, we walk out at night and see the stars and the, the moon and all of the things. Uh, after a rain and we walk outside and we see a rainbow, we can learn so much from God just from those things. And in the book of Psalms, which we're studying this week, a lot of the Psalms were written with this very thing in mind. For example, Psalm 65, verses 9, 13, 9 through 13. We see the writer was, he was in awe of the complexity of creation and how God cares for even the smallest of details. I want us to read that. This is what the writer said. You care for the land and water and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the deserts overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Here's the writer of this psalm talking about when he walks out and sees all of the things that God has done. And, and it's not just, God, you did a great job. He goes into the smallest of details of how the water, it, it comes from the river and the rain, it comes and it, it waters the fields and the grains, the grain grows and it brings forth and the people provided for. And he's just in awe that God was able to, to just put all this into motion. In our day, scientists are still awestruck at the workings of creation. There's a website called LiveScience.com, and I was reading something from that this past week. And there are some things that scientists try to explain about creation. And, and I want you to stay with me for just a minute here, because this is some of the coolest stuff. According to Live Science, the green turtle's motherly instinct compels female green turtles to return to their birthplace to start their families. The pregnant turtles swim more than a thousand miles from their coastal feeding grounds in Brazil into the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean to Ascension Island. A thousand miles. And then on the tiny island sandy beach, the expectant mothers carve out their nest and lay their eggs before heading back home. You go, well, that's pretty cool. What about this? The ruby-throated hummingbird, whose wings beat an amazing hundred times per second. They migrate 500 miles across the Gulf of Mexico every year from eastern North America to Central America. That's pretty cool, but listen to this. Before their journey, now consider they're flying across the Gulf of Mexico. There's not a lot of place to stop. Before their journey, they eat enough nectar, insects, and tree sap to gain two grams of fat, almost doubling their weight in order to have food for the trip. The monarch butterfly will travel even further. Every fall, they migrate 3,000 miles from their summer homes in the United States and Canada to their winter homes in California and Mexico. Every year they do that. And life science makes a, an interesting observation on these things. This is a quote. They know when and where to go continues to puzzle scientists. End quote. 
for scientists that may be unexplainable. And they might look at it and say, we just can't figure out how they know where to go. How do these turtles know exactly where to go? How do they know to return to their birthplace? How do these hummingbirds know that they have to almost double their weight so they can fly across the Gulf of Mexico? And scientists say this is just not explainable. But for those of us that believe that God created everything that we see, we understand just as the writer of the Psalms did. Hundreds of years ago, there was a philosophy that emerged, and it was called deism. And, and followers of deism saw God as a, a kind of awesome clockmaker who created the world like a clockmaker would create a clock, and he set it up with these unchanging laws, and he put it into place, and then he just walked away. They picture God as a creator, but not as a creator that is involved in the everyday operations of what he created. When we look at the Psalms, we look at the things we just read about these, these different types of animals, we know that God didn't just put everything into place and walk away. His hand is in everything we see every day. The Bible is consistent from beginning to end when it comes to teaching that there is this intimate connection between God and His creation. We see the hand of God in everything we do. We see the hand of God in all of nature, enough to know that it wasn't just put into to effect and it just happened. Psalm 104, verses 24 through 26. Let's read that together. How many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro in the Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. Few people in our day, maybe we're too busy, whatever the reason might be, Few people take time to reflect on the vastness of God's creation and the lessons that it teaches us. But the writer of Psalm 104 did just that. And what he found is that he was overwhelmed with emotions when he looked at what God had created. In the first few verses of the psalm, we see that he was awestruck with the power of God and that all things that he saw were under control of his God. In, if we go all the way back in, in chapter 104, back to verses 4 through 9, the, the writer speaks about water and fire and water that are all, and wind, fire, and water that are all under the control of God. And the writer refers to the fact that at one point in the history of mankind, that God had actually used those things to destroy the earth. And we know that that was in Noah's day, that he used water to completely cover the earth. And, and the writer in, in Psalm 104 is talking about this, and he says that at one time you, you destroyed the entire earth. That shows that God was in control. But then he goes on a little bit later to say, but then you said you would never do it again, and you set up boundaries. The water, he says in verses 8 and 9, he says, the water went where you told it to go, and then you set up a boundary so that it would never cover and destroy the earth in that way again. And he doesn't stop there. Look at verses 10 through 14. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. 
See, so many times we look at the things of nature and we say, we, we tend to think if we're not careful that they just happen. And the writer of this psalm is saying, God, you destroyed the world one time with water, but then after you did that, you said, I'll never do that again, and you spoke the water where it was supposed to go, and it went where you said. It did exactly what you said. The water did what you said. And then you make the streams to pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains, and they give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters, they sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. You see, those things didn't just all happen. We serve a God that is involved in every aspect of what happens in the earth. And the writer of this psalm was taking it down to the smallest degree that the water goes where you tell it to go and you cause rain to come from the, from the sky and it waters the grass and it gives the, the wild donkey something to eat. They can go drink from the stream. And you cause the, 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 the grain to grow and then men can take it and, and they can use it for food. And it didn't just happen. My God has his hand in every aspect of creation. Or does it just happen? There's a lot of people that say, yeah, but that's just, that's nature. It might just be nature, but God is in control of nature. God spoke everything that we see into existence. And I know I say that a lot, but it, it really helps me to keep a, a perspective of how big our God is, the fact that he could speak all this into to being. He didn't have to work at it and work at, oh, man, I, I, I made that animal and it's really kind of messed up. I just wasn't really happy with that one. No. He goes, I want this animal to be like this. Yeah, it's kind of funny looking, but... It, I think it's kind of cool. Some of you guys will be able to fly. Some of you won't. Sorry, just the way I made you. Because he had his hand in everything. That's why the writer expressed in verse 24 that he was overwhelmed. He looks at it and he says, I just don't even know what to say. When I look at your creation, the earth is full of your creatures. And he recognized that it was God in his wisdom that made all of these things. And he knew that all the creatures on the earth were his. In verse 25, the writer goes on to speak about the vastness of the sea. And he says that it's, it is so great that men can't even fathom it. And, and this, is a, this is a great example of, of how tremendous and great the sea is. He says that men build great ships and they send them across the water. But when they're gone, the water goes right back to the way it was before they went past. No effect at all. All the countless number of fish and, and things that are under the water, when that ship has gone by, they all go right back to what they were doing before it got there. 
Why? Because it's just that big. It's just that great. You can go out into the Gulf of Mexico, and it doesn't matter how big your ship is, when you go through there and you look out the stern of the boat and you see that big wake going by and by and by and by and by, and after that ship's been gone for about an hour, everything's back like it was. I heard somebody the other day talking about the upcoming hurricane season. And they were saying that with as, as much technology and everything that we have, how is it that men can't change the direction of a hurricane? Well, if you look at the size of the last few that we've seen, they covered the entire southeastern United States. I wouldn't want to go up in a plane and try to fight that. You see, because, yeah, hurricanes are not good, necessarily. But if they're God's creation, and that's what God put into place, and he said, I will make it go to where I say it's going to go, we're not going to stop it. The best we can do is run. Because it's part of God's creation, and it's just bigger than we are. And I think one of the saddest things for a lot of people is they just don't realize how big God is. They just don't realize that God is just a whole lot bigger than what we are. And in a lot of cases, he's just a whole lot bigger than what we can even imagine. So as the writer here, he, he contemplates the complexity and the wonders of the world around him. He didn't conclude that it was just random acts that happened. Instead, he concluded that it was the consequence of a well-planned design. A design that came about through God's considerable thought to his creation and his creatures. That God actually thought all this out before he did it, and it's just like he wanted it to be. A design that caused all creatures to fit together in a way that reveals the existence of a wise and wonderful God. Psalm 104, verses 27 through 30. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. As the writer of Psalm 104 observed the natural world, he learned a very powerful lesson that there truly is an intimate relationship between God and his creation. And the relationship is graciously conditional. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's conditional because God's creatures depend on him to provide for their basic needs. But God's creatures also have a responsibility to do something to receive what God offers to meet their needs. The writer says that God provides the food for his creation, but it also says that he expects his creatures to go and gather it up. That's what he said. That's their only responsibility. He provides it, and all they have to do is just go gather it up. We as human beings have a similar relationship to God. It's a cooperative relationship. Yes, we know that God waters the fields for the crops to grow, but for people to benefit from it, they have to cultivate it and process it. 
For example, God causes wheat to grow, but it's still up to men to farm the wheat, to process the wheat into grain, and to make flour, and then to make bread. As far as I know, there's not a lot of bread plants out there where you can just go pick a loaf of bread off the plant. No, God provides, but then He expects us to do our part also. And that goes with all aspects of our life. There's too many people that think that God is just this, this holy ATM machine that when you need something, you just take out your little Holy Ghost card and you stick it in there and all the blessings just come pouring out. No, God does pour out His blessings on us, but He, he asks us to do something too. And that's to gather it up. And there's plenty of people that want God to provide, but they want it to be all God's work. Where the Bible is clear that there are parts of God's plan that require action on our part. It doesn't take away from the greatness of God. If anything, it shows the greatness of His plan that He built us into it. It just makes the plan all that much greater because He built us a place in that plan. Even in the Old Testament, go back to the Old Testament when God's people had escaped out of Egypt and they were headed to the promised land. They were on the run. They didn't have time to plant a garden and have it grow and process it and all that. And God knew that, so he provided them manna. Manna was, was bread that just, when they got up in the morning, it was on the ground. The key thing here is it was on the ground. It wasn't in their tent. It was on the ground. They had to go pick it up. Well, God, I just don't think I feel like going out and picking it up today. Well, then you just won't eat. They had to go out every day and gather it up. That was God's plan. And it doesn't make God bad because they had to, to go out and pick it up. It just shows that God had such an, a, a perfect plan that it included them in the plan. We're included in His plan. Laboring is part of God's plan. That's our part of the plan. A lot of times, even in, in, in like for church growth, we, we would prefer a lot of times, I think, to just pray, God, send people here. And God's saying, well... The way that I really set it up is that your commandment was to go into the world and make disciples of them. God, send people to our church. Well, you're supposed to go and get them. You see, the plan is the same. God will bless it, but He requires some things of us. And the thing He requires of us is to go out and be witnesses. He requires of us to go out and be a light in a dark world. Not just to sit here among ourselves and pray for God just to fill the place up. You say, well, do you think He could do that? I know He could do it. But that's not the plan. So labor is part of God's plan. But let me, let me tell you how perfect God's plan is for men to get up and go to work every day and to labor for, for the, the blessings that God provides, He made this thing called the sun, and He made this thing called the moon. And every day, one of those comes out and goes away, and the other one comes up. You know why? So that we know when to stop working. You see, it didn't just happen that there was a sun and a moon. That was part of God's plan. 
Yes, I want you to go to work, but I want you to kind of pay attention to this sun and moon thing going on so that you'll know when to stop working and go home. Part of God's plan. Because of the working relationship between us and our Creator, the writer in verse 29, he recognized what happens when, when God hides his face. He said, when you hide your face, people are terrified. The smart people, at least. Because the smart people know that everything they see and have comes from God. And if he hides his face from them, we're not going to see what God has for us. Verse 29 tells us, tells us that while God has the power to sustain life, He also has the power to take it away. And while the promise of provision renews our spirit, and we can jump up and down and hoot and holler and say, thank you, Jesus, the possibility of denial terrifies us. I can say that from personal reflection. That at the times in my life that I felt like God was a distant being somewhere and He had turned His face from me, that I was scared. Because I knew where my help came from. But here's one thing we have to remember. The fact of creation is that we are God's creation. He not only created us, He loves us, and we have a promise. Now, let's read a scripture, Philippians 4.19. It says that He will meet all, all of our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because He loves us. Because He created us. Because we are a part of His, His plan that He set into motion thousands and thousands of years ago. You see, I'm not a real big fan of evolution. Because evolution says that, that something happened and it just evolved from that and, and, and it just became whatever it became. The reason I don't believe that is because I believe God did everything He did specifically for a reason. Not by accident. Psalm 104, verses 31-35. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles. Let's look at that again. He who looks at the earth and it trembles. That's a powerful God that can just look at the earth and the earth shakes. He who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to Him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The relationship between creation and the Creator for most creatures is a built-in response. They respond in a certain way because that's the way they're made to respond. The birds get up in the morning and they're made to, to do what? They, they start singing. If you're a rooster, you start crowing. And you go walk out in the woods first thing in the morning and you hear all of nature 
doing what God made it to do, glorifying its Creator, singing, and, and, and just doing all the things they do. You see, it's an automatic response with those creatures. But for us, it's not quite the same way. The relationship with our Creator between men and the Creator is a response by choice. We can choose to get up in the morning and go through the entire day without speaking to God. It's our choice. At least with me it is. I, I don't feel this compulsion every time I get up to run out in the woods and start singing. So we choose whether or not we praise our Creator. But the writer's response in the passage we just read was to pray that God would just keep on doing what He's doing and keep on doing the good that He's been doing. And God, I'll just keep praising You every day. You just keep doing what You're doing and I'll rejoice in Your works every day. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. Lord, you're doing a great job. Just keep going. And by the way, I'm going to keep praising you too. The writer recognized the awesome power of God and that this power can both give life and take life away. It's also a power, according to verse 30, 32, that with just a look, the earth trembles and God can touch a mountain and the volcanoes erupt. You see, the writer of this psalm, he got it. He really got how big God was and how in control of everything in the universe that God was. That He wasn't just a distant God that sits up on His throne and just sits there and looks at His people and goes, can't believe I ever made them. No. He is involved intimately in every aspect of our life. And somebody would say, yeah, but I don't feel like He's very involved in my life. The writer of this psalm wanted God to, to just keep enjoying the world the exact way he'd been enjoying it since the flood. Lord, don't go back to that time before the flood. We've been good since the flood. And remember he went into the detail about how you took the water and you spread it and told it to go back where it was supposed to? I'll rejoice in the fact that everything's just fine now. We know from the Scripture that the, the writer recognized the need to respond to his Creator and the greatness of God with thanksgiving and praise to God. He said these things. He said, I will sing to the Lord all my life. May my meditation be pleasing to Him. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. I believe that the proper response to God's continued blessings is the singing of praises to the giver of those blessings. That's why when we come to church... We, we have that time of worship before, before we hear from the Word. We have that time of worship that brings us in as a congregation into this place of praise. 
It's not, we don't come here so that we can learn the words to the songs. It's not choir practice. It's worship. It's, it, it gives us a time to reflect like the writer of this psalm does. It gives us a time to reflect on, on how good God is and how great God is. And when we sing a song like, How Great Is Our God, sing with me, How Great Is Our God, that we really mean it from our heart. God, you are magnificent. I see your hand in every aspect of my life. Even when it's not going good, I know that you're still there. That's the hard part. See, it's easy for us to recognize God's hand in our life when things are going good. It's a little bit more difficult sometimes when things aren't going the way we think. But it doesn't change our God. Because as we said before, it's not a matter of like the, the deist that think God made it all and then walked away from it. But as the, the writer here recognized, and we need to recognize too, that praise alone is not enough. Just coming and singing the praises to God is not enough. Yes, we need to do that. And the writer said that he did that. But here's what it really should involve. True praise from, our, our, from us toward our Creator, our entire life should be lived in a way that reflects our dependence on God. Everything we do should be praise to God and should be in recognition to the greatness of God. The writer here wrote that he wanted his meditation to be pleasing. It's not just praying that our thoughts are pleasing. It's, it's praying that the entire focus of everything in our life is pleasing to God. We don't want to just come to church and sing the songs and raise our hands and, and praise God and then walk out and forget about them until next Sunday. Our entire life needs to be a praise to, to our Creator. The term meditation in Psalm 104.34 means to give reflective consideration to something. Another word for it is rumination. And stay with me for here just a second because this is really cool. Rumination has a very different but, but kind of related meaning. I'm not a cattle rancher. I've never raised cattle. But in doing some reading, I've learned something about cows that relates to meditation. Now stay with me. This is really cool. A cow is a multi-stomached animal. When it eats grass, the grass initially goes unchewed into the first stomach. The grass stays in that stomach for a while. This is kind of the gross part. Then it's regurgitated, chewed, combined with saliva, and passed into a second stomach to where it's digested to be used by the cow's body. The process of regurgitating the digested food and chewing it is called rumination. It's also called chewing the cud, or what I would call gross. And I said all that to get to this point. Meditation follows a similar process. God's Word first has to be taken in and learned. It needs to be kept in our mind for a while and given considered thought. 
The implications of what we've read need to be pondered. We need to really give it some serious thought. And after it's been chewed on for a while in our mind, then it's ready to be digested. See, that's what the writer was saying when, when he said, may my meditation be pleasing to him, not just read a scripture and go, yeah, okay, yeah, that's good. No, take that scripture and, and, and put it in your mind and just let it sit there for a little while and then kind of chew on it and ponder on it. And see, then it's like that, that cud that the cow chews. Once you've gone through that process, then it can be beneficial. To just read it and forget it, the Scripture's not really beneficial. The, the, in Psalm 119 and 11, it says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I won't sin against it. Why? Because he's actually taking the word and he's chewing it up and he's meditating on it and it's becoming a part of him. You see, when a cow eats that first that grass the first time in that first stomach, it's of no benefit to the cow. It's just sitting there. And if we read the Word of God and we just read it and then we just forget about it, it's of no more benefit than that first place the grass stops when a cow eats it. But when we mull it over and we ponder on it and we chew on it and we digest it and we make it a part of us, it becomes useful and motivational for us to go out and live our life for our Creator. The writer ends this psalm then with, with a prayer for sinners to vanish from the earth. And that sounds kind of mean. But he knew that blessings as individuals that we receive are often tied to a nation that he's connected to. Another way to look at it is that when the relationship between God and a nation deteriorates, it often affects the lives of those that live in that nation. Don't believe it? Start watching the news. As a nation goes, so goes its people. When the nation and, and the, the leadership and the, the, the laws of the land start to, to turn away from, from God, its creator, all of a sudden you find that the people do too. And the writer here, all he was saying when he said, let the, the sinners vanish from the earth, he was saying he didn't want anyone or anything to come between himself and the blessings that God wanted to provide for him. I don't want anything to come between me and my creator. And some would read these psalms today and they would go, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. That was a long time ago. Things are different now. To that I would answer this. God doesn't change. In addition to that, I would say this. The New Testament has an awful lot to say about God's care and involvement in His creation as the Old Testament does. But I want to go back to a a scripture in the Old Testament. In fact, it's in the book of Isaiah. I want to look at one of the prophecies that Isaiah wrote about. Isaiah 7 and 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 700 years after that scripture was written, we see that prophecy was fulfilled. 
And in the book of Matthew, the writer Matthew, he quotes this passage from Isaiah and provides also a little bit of explanation. Look at Matthew 1, 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we see that Jesus was that. He was God with us. Even in the New Testament, with the birth of Christ, we see God's involvement in mankind because His name was Emmanuel that literally means God with us. How cool is that? And He is still God with us. As Jesus, as He grew up and began His ministry and He, he, he walked around the earth teaching, He spoke so much of how God cares for us as individuals. And how important each of us are to him. Look in Matthew chapter 10 verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, sparrows are they are cheap. You buy them two for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You're worth five cents. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that God cares about the very least of creation. The sparrows, that they're sold two for a penny, but not one of those sparrows, nothing happens to one of those sparrows that God doesn't know it. And yet we find ourselves in, in terrible situations, and God, you don't know where I am. You've forgotten about me. No, he hasn't. He knows when a little tiny sparrow falls from the ground. He knows that. That's how big my God is. And Jesus went on to say, this is how much He cares for you. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. And He subtracts the ones that are in the shower when you get out of the shower. How cool is that? The hairs of your head are numbered. So don't worry about stuff. Your God is involved in your life because you're worth than a whole bunch of sparrows. You're worth more than a whole bunch of sparrows. Jesus was saying that, that God is so involved in His creation that He knows every little detail of what happens in that creation. So how much does He love us? He loves us enough to keep count on the hairs of our head. If God knows the details of our lives to that extent, how could we ever doubt that He loves us and wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives? Matthew 6, verses 26 through 29. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? The, another translation says, can add an inch to his height. Either way, you can't do either one of them. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not spin or labor. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon 
in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these little lilies in the field. And they didn't even have to do anything. They just grew. And Solomon, probably the wealthiest man, wealthiest man that's ever lived in the world, with all his splendor and gold and everything, he wasn't as cool as one of those lilies. Because I made that lily. And I made that lily exactly the way I wanted it to be. Jesus challenged his audience at the Sermon on the Mount not to worry about what they would eat and drink and wear and what was going to happen. He said, look around you. The birds, they're not out there worrying about stuff. They know that their father's going to provide for them. And you go, well, wow, you must be really spiritual to, to be able to believe all that. I'm still working on that part. I believe it. It's just hard to kind of buy into when, when things aren't going all that great. We still sometimes start feeling like, God, did you forget about me? Hello, I'm down here. Kind of need your help. When the fact is this, that He has never forgotten about us. He has never taken His eye off us. He has never become uninvolved in our lives. He knows exactly where you are right now in your life. He knows exactly where you're going in your life right now if you're following Him. Though I wish He'd do things a little differently. Sometimes we do feel that way. Honestly, sometimes we feel like we wish God would do things a little differently. But you know what? He knows what tomorrow holds and we don't. That's why He doesn't do it our way, because we'd mess it up. Amen. God is involved. This is, if you don't remember anything else I've said today, remember this. God is involved in every aspect of His creation, and we are a part of that creation. The more we appreciate how much He cares for the natural world around us, the more we will see how deeply He cares for us. There's one final scripture I want to read that shows God's love for us in the most incredible way, and that's John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, God didn't just create the world and walk away. He's been invo involved in people's lives from the beginning. That's how he knew that, that mankind was lost in sin. And because of that sin, that man was headed into an eternity of punishment and death because of their disobedience. And this scripture proves without a doubt to me that God is involved in every aspect of his creation because when he saw man was headed in this direction towards destruction, he said, here's what I'll do. I will have my only son, Jesus Christ, die in your place. A God that's a distant God that walked away from creation, he wouldn't have done that. 
But my God loved me so much that He saw that I was headed for, for destruction. He saw that I was headed for eternal death. And He said that I love you so much and I'm so involved in your life that I will provide a way of salvation. And so Jesus Christ comes to earth and He died for me. And that salvation is free to whoever will receive it. That's what it says. You see, our God is a God of here and now. And a God of the future. Not just a God of history. And the greatest part is that He is here in this place today. And He will show you that love if you will just invite Him into your heart. God bless you.